This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Los Angeles, the kind of city where anything that can happen does happen, and everything that does happen, right and wrong, seems to belong here. It couldn't happen anywhere else. There's an air of beauty and shame here, a twisted nod of the city's glory and its sins bound tight together. Unlike the comparatively ancient New York, say, LA's sins are still recent, the wounds still scabbed and unhealed across its golden-hued suntan skin. Raymond Chandler once wrote, There was a desert wind blowing that night. It was one of those hot, dry Santa Anas that came down through the mountain passes and curl your hair and make your nerves jump and your skin itch. On nights like that, every booze party ends in a fight. Meek little wives feel the edge of the carving knife and study their husbands' necks. Anything can happen. You can even get a full glass of beer at a cocktail lounge. Anything can happen, all right. Missing neighborhoods, missing gangs, missing loves, missing lives. In this city, turn any corner, walk down any mean street, and you'll find a mystery. Cruel and enticing and magic and heartbreaking, waiting for you there. As we roll into episode five and the small, burgeoning development that is Channel View Estates, I've spoken to a handful of guests so far about Inherent Vice. The first three, Blake Howard, Kim Morgan, and Kaylee Donaldson, were all fellow obsessives. The fourth, Fred Hoffner, was the total opposite, someone who fell asleep multiple times during her first press screening for the film due to her dislike of it. All four, though, were people who have lived with Inherent Vice for the last five years, with ideas and opinions on the film that have only grown and expanded in that time. As such, I thought it would be interesting to speak with someone who has never seen Inherent Vice until now. That's today's guest, and going into today's episode, I have no idea what he thinks of the film. And I am, I am genuinely unsure of how this is going to go today. But that's not the only reason to have him on. As an Edgar Award-winning author of crime fiction, he penned one of my favorite books of the last few years, She Rides Shotgun, which is a fucking blisteringly paced paper moon meets lone wolf and cub road novel involving so-called SoCal Aryan gangs and borderline surrealistic underground crime kingdoms two things which are not unfamiliar to fans of Inherent Vice. And it reads like a twin-barreled blast to the heart in its story of a father and daughter trying to outrun the past. He's also no stranger to adapting strange and difficult material for the screen, having written the pilot for the tragically doomed L.A. Confidential TV series, the strongest pilot for a network show I've seen since the original Twin Peaks. It was a script that nimbly avoided the pitfalls of so many modern noirs, Instead of tripping over himself to buckshot fedoras and expressionism and trench coats across the screen, today's guest understands that noir is a state of the soul. He's also a fellow Missouri boy, as we both hail from the same corner of the Ozarks. So, if this episode quickly devolves into a discussion concerning what is the best grease pit diner in Springfield, Missouri, I apologize, and the answer is Casper's on Walnut Street, by the way. Try the double chili cheese with Frito pie. And so, with that, Jordan Harper... Thanks for coming on. 
Well, I'm glad you said Caspers. Um, you know, I, I'm glad you said all those other nice things about me, and thank you very much. And also, I'm glad you said the book was fucking great, or however you said it, because now I know that I can uh, swear to my heart's content. Oh, you can, but I, I, I believe I said a fucking blisteringly paced. Oh, I sh- I, sorry, I, I wasn't transcribing. I was too busy just letting it all roll over me, all those kind words. Uh, no, Casper's, let's get to the heart of it. Casper's is the best restaurant in Springfield, and it's basically where I want to go when I go home. Yeah, I would live there if I could. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, regardless of what it would do to my blood pressure and to the my inner workings, and, you know, when you do eat there, I, I love it, you will feel yourself kind of liquefy from the inside out. But that's all part of the experience. Uh, and but- I know that... That might not be inherent vice related, but people need to know. It's important that we get out there because everybody at some point in their life will find themselves in downtown Springfield, Missouri, and they're going to want to know where to eat. And the answer is get to the Quonson Hut at the end of <laughs> Walnut and go. And me, I'm just large chili with a grilled cheese on the side that you tear up and, and you use like— your, You make it your croutons. Yeah, like chili croutons, exactly. And uh, I'm not dead yet, so <laughs> some something's working. Um I'm so I'm I'm sure people are so happy that they're listening to this episode mm. so far. It's really scratching that inherent visage. Well, yeah, the hidden gems of the Ozarks. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was you know when Anthony Bourdain came to the Ozarks, uh, I he didn't talk to anybody I knew. That's what I I was sure of. Did you ever watch that episode? I didn't even know he came. He did. He he hung out with Daniel Woodrell, which was very cool. Um, somebody got him to eat. Was it Fried Raccoon, or am I thinking of a different episode? It, fried it, Raccoon sounds very Ozarks to me. But did you ever, do you ever eat Fried Raccoon? I've eaten Fried Squirrel. I have not had either. I'm, I'm ashamed to admit. Oh. <laughs> I actually had an argument with uh, one of my roommates in college because we had a, a freezer full of, of Fried Squirrel. And I, I said, <laughs> he was also from the Ozarks. And um, I said, my grandma had always been very explicit that you cut the heads off a squirrel before you fry them. Because of some disease that's held in their brain, and I don't sure that seems logical, right? And he said, "Well, I never heard that." And I said, "Well, what if I'm right? Then we cut off the head. What if you're right? We cut off the head. We're still not losing anything. Let's cut off the head." You hear that, everybody? (laughs) Are you good? (laughs) Glad we settled all this. Yeah, I mean, you know, and you said that with such like vociferous seriousness. You were like your eyes were like boring into mine <laughs> as you said that. Like Travis, hear me. Hear me. Well, cut the head off the squirrel before you cook it. This actually sounds like something that Sancho and Doc would eat at that little diner by the sea when they're talking about uh, the Golden Fang. That's true. Except for does anybody in that movie eat anything other than pizza? No, we don't. I don't think we actually see them eat anything. Well, I mean, unless you count hoovering cocaine. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, but beyond that, no. But. Speaking of inherent vice, which we should probably mention at least once in this episode, you have not seen this film until last night. For the, you, you, oh, this is I'm nervous. I'm breathing into a paper bag right now. <laughs> Before we get into your opinion on the film as a whole, what took you so long to see this? Because you are someone who is you're a film guy, you're a movie guy. Yeah, I, I like to think of myself as a movie guy. Um, well, I will tell you, it's going to give you a preview of, of where I'm at. Oh, God. And uh, I'll just tell you that I don't love Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Um, I don't hate them. I just don't love any of them. Um, I feel like I feel like you're breaking up with me. Like, <laughs> the, look on, the look on your face right now. And I had probably a 45-minute conversation uh, with my girlfriend, Megan, who you've met, mm-hmm. uh, yesterday trying to figure out why. And I, I intend to continue having that conversation with you here today because I don't have any kind of aesthetic argument I can really make 
Like, I, I know he's talented. I know that the movies are very smart. I know that there is artistic worth in them, that they're not just, like, intellectual masturbation. I think a lot of the arguments that I would say, well, I don't like X about these films, you could say, well, what about the Coen brothers? Don't they also have that attribute? And I'd go, yeah. Um, and so, you know, we can talk about it. But, like, from, uh, again, like, Boogie Nights, I loved, although easily the last 15 minutes you could lop off everything that happens after the throwing the firecracker scene which is perfect um boy that movie goes on I, guys travis is mad at me i just want to say that right now i can see his face and he's mad at me and i'm just i'm letting you go man i'm, I'm gonna, just i'm gonna let you make your own news here I, i'm just speaking my truth here and um again i want to be clear it's i don't hate Paul Thomas Anderson. I just the, and and I'll, this is going to blow. There's this is not the only Paul Thomas Anderson movie I've never seen. Uh, I've never seen Magnolia. I've never seen The Master. Um, Jesus. Yeah, and uh, you know there will be blood. I saw, but not in the theater. Um, saw it once. Um, Punch S- Drunk Love. Saw it once. Saw it once. I, you know. Um, yeah, man. I uh, I feel like you know I'm I'm so glad to be part of, of film Twitter and I enjoy it and I know what that I'm not a part of it fully because I I don't like to use the word hater. I'm not a hater. Maybe I am a hater, but I I I, I do feel like I am critical of a lot of things in a way that people aren't at least in public on Twitter, and and I just have to just say that yeah, I'm not. Again, I think he's probably brilliant. I would probably say brilliant. I I. I watched like 15 minutes, I guess to amend, uh, the other day I watched like 15 minutes of There Will Be Blood because it's on Netflix or something. And I was like, wow, yeah, the composition, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, oh, my God. That is oh, so, so nonplussed. So um, so when Inherent Vice came out, um, which was, you said, five years ago? It was 2014. 2014. Um, first of all, this entire decade is a smear, as I, I learned while I was kind of trying to put together a early best of 2000s or whatever we're calling this decade teens the tens the tens uh list and just going oh my time makes no sense to me anymore um and um because that's the same year that mad max came out i believe or that was that 2015 uh that was a little later i I yeah. it must have been 15 15 and uh if you told me that movie came out 10 years ago i would uh-huh yeah you bet absolutely <laughs> um i don't know if it ever occurred to me to go see inherent vice Wow. And, uh, yeah, and and again, I can't, I would love to come in here and tell you, like, some definitive thing or, or to have hated the, the movie, which I didn't. Um, but it just, there is some place in his psyche and mine that are supposed to interlock and don't. And, and I really, we can keep talking about it. Um, and, you know, and once we actually kind of dive more into the movie and the scene, which was a cool scene, I, you know, gonna, gonna, but I have, you know, I have some, some things to say about it, but, um, yeah, I, I feel like you're not going to get anybody else probably on this podcast who's going to say, yeah, you know, B. <laughs> oh, I knew I was in trouble <laughs> um, when um, you, Megan, and myself were at a screening. I think it was was, it, it was Natural Born Killers. Yeah. And we were talking about you coming to do the show, and she just looked at you and she said, oh, you're going to hate it. She thought I was going to hate the movie, mm-hmm. and I didn't hate it. And, and um, you know... I, I I look Joaquin Phoenix is great. Uh the costumes are great. 
the, <laughs> the, costumes. the costumes. All right. Well, you know what? To quote Mickey Knox, let's just roll the fucking dice. <laughs> give, give what, what's your full takeaway of um, inherent vice? I will say, you know, we spoke very little about this beforehand, um, but uh, the the idea that I will I will watch it again and probably enjoy it more, uh, I think is is very fair. I think you know any of these Byzantine uh, detective series kind of inspired movies uh, get better the more you watch them because uh, first view trying very hard not to go back and rewatch things and and just to let it soak in the plot is incomprehensible um, the first time you watch it and I assume that's the case for everybody or or just me um, and I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing and I know that for instance. One of my favorite movies of all time, Miller's Crossing. I don't know how many times I watched Miller's Crossing before yeah. I actually understood all of the machinations that happen, things that are tossed off with comments. And I don't think that's bad. And uh, and I know we'll talk about Elroy more. Um, I adapted, um, you know, like you said, uh, L.A. Confidential to the screen. Uh, I have read it a dozen plus times easily. Um, if you ask me to explain the last 50 pages of that, that <laughs> book to you, I couldn't do it. So I don't think that's necessarily bad. Um, I, there is, again, there's something like an inability to get a handhold on the character that I... Of Doc? Of Doc and, and hmm. what he actually wants and, and what he's actually striving for. Um, that I, If you tell me it's because it's, it's a very complicated and deep portrait, I will believe you. I absolutely will. Um, I liked it. I liked it. I mean, that's that's. I feel like that's kind of, and not just about this film, but almost anything today. The like the the weirdest, most rare reaction that people give in public to something is. I thought it was pretty good. It's fine. Yeah, it was fun. It was you know. Um, I mean, an amazing cast, up up and down. Um, we're gonna spend some time talking about the Dean of Mean, uh, Keith Jardine, <laughs> uh, who I was delighted to see in that film. Um, <laughs> Obviously, on top of all the other, like, actually magnificent actors. Like, I mean, Reese Witherspoon, perfect in that movie. Yeah. Um, and he's great. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is probably our best actor right now. I mean, I think that's a fair thing would, to say. I would say so. Yeah. I don't disagree. Um, you know, I, I'm very bad with names. I'll just be uh, – he's Doc. I've got that. <laughs> um, literally everybody else in the movie, I'm going to either just like gesture. You mean or... you don't remember Aubrey Threepley and <laughs> Insanata Slim? <laughs> yeah. And Adrian Prussia and Puck Beaverton? You don't. Yeah, remember? which is which is a problem when, when plot reveals are, are done, such as, yeah, the Prussian guy is actually behind all this. And you go, who? Who that now? Oh, now, come on. Oh, well, we're going to get an argument. They cut right to Adrian Prussia right when they mention him. Well, sure, but I was like, did, have we seen that guy before? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, no, no, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's something I did want to bring up because you are someone who had to streamline a very difficult and discursive and sprawling novel mm -hmm. into, at least initially, a hard hour. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I believe... You know, L.A. Confidential is a book. I believe the literary term for it is a motherfucker. Yeah, that's and, what it says, Library of Congress. Yeah, if I you thought, open up mm -hmm. that first page, it'll say that, yeah. And I know that, I'm assuming that, you have not read the novel upon which this film is based. I have read about 30 pages of it. There you go. And <laughs> he's just trying to piss me off. <laughs> like he's, he's trying. Um, well... Without having read it, I am curious, as someone who has also adapted difficult work, uh, what you made of PTA's approach in that, 
he took a novel that, while fairly compact for Thomas Pynchon, mm-hmm. uh, is still it's a ludicrously dense portrait of the bring down Hayes after the death of the 60s. And you get the sense that he, Pynchon, is bitterly angry and sad um, about the broken promises that he found built into the American dream and the utopia that the hippie movement thought they would find there and didn't. Mm -hmm. And the book is very, it's not hyper-political, but you get the sense there's an anger about how things turned out and it wasn't supposed to be this way. And from that, when you watch the film, I think you can see that PTA chose to focus on the love story Mm -hmm. and use that or rather the lost love story. And he used that as his his organizing principle to collapse all of this stuff into, two, into a two and a half hour film. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, you've had to do that yourself. And I'm curious what you made of his choice to go with the more human romantic element as a way of squeezing this onto a screen and basically backgrounding everything else. Well, that's- because, I mean, well... I'm going to interrupt you. I'm no, not no, going to feel finish, bad about interrupting you for all this shit you've said so far. So <laughs> far, we've only agreed on Casper's. Um, that in in doing what he did, you know, he basically, I think, ran hard with that thing that you're talking about, that very big sleep. Well, the mystery doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that, there's that very famous anecdote of when uh, the big sleep was being filmed, um, the, the Bogart version, and they... They call Chandler yep. and ask him, like, hey, who, who killed the valet? And there's this, this long pause, and he's like, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Yeah. And, and it just it doesn't matter. It's just as, you know, I've said this on a couple of different episodes so far. PTA has said, you know, he's, he, he always, he's, he's like, I always get confused when I, when I think about a movie's plot, any movie's plot. Mm-hmm. I'm just waiting for the hero to get into another room with the next pretty girl or a guy with a gun. Yeah, and I don't really care about that other stuff. And I think, I think for him, the story here is just how badly you can miss someone. And you know, I think for Pynchon, it was how badly you can miss a time and the promise of a time. Mm-hmm. And that's much more of a metaphor in this film. And I'm curious, did that work for you at all, or did you just get lost in the? Because I know that the first time to you view this film or kind of any noir, there is that instinct to just so desperately try to hold on to the goings on. To get to the end. Well, I, I do think just to, to answer that last part first is, is I do have enough experience with this kind of storytelling to know, like, to not hold this with a tight grip. And just mm-hmm. the story's just going to happen. And that actually, you know, I, I, I somebody told me something that, that Paul Thomas Anderson said once, which was, once I have more good scenes than bad scenes in the script, I start shooting. <laughs> uh, which is interesting because to me it does, to get at this thing that maybe is why I don't respond to him as a filmmaker, is I do think he is a scene-based uh, storyteller. He is not a film-based storyteller, and he's not a narrative person. And I think for this, I'm sure that if you plot out everything that's in the story, it does make sense. It does. I promise. I, I believe you. I really do. And uh, but I'm not sure that was because of Paul Thomas Anderson. It's, it's. I assume it's pretty much exactly what is in the novel as far as the story, the mystery goes. Yes, there are a few things that are left out for simplicity's sake. Mm-hmm. The reason certain characters are killed, Glenn Sherlock, for instance, is killed for a slightly different reason than he is in the book. But it all ends up, it all ends up in the kind same of, place. Kind of where it is. Um, I think maybe it would have been a more, and I'm curious how you feel because 
the movie you're describing that would be a more like a, an ode to the 60s might have been a more like visually interesting kind of propulsive movie, but I'm not sure it would have been a better one. Do you think it would have been a better one? No, um, I much prefer the film. Um, maybe I'm I'm sappy at heart, but um, you know, and, and you know, I know we're going through this uh, thing right now, the OK Boomer mm-hmm. uh, thing right now, where I feel like I've seen enough of the laments for the what the 60s were and what they could have been. Yeah. And sometimes I love that. I, I know I think it's for you, another movie where you're like, yeah, it's fine. But I really loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. To be clear, I have not seen it. Oh, I thought you were someone who was just okay with it. No, no, no. I, I have the supreme benefit of not having an opinion about it because um, I haven't seen it. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and so while I can enjoy that kind of film – you do get to, I think, especially if you weren't a part of that era, as I was not, mm-hmm. you do get to a place where you're just like, yes, I get it. I know it's, I, I, I hear the mamas and papa songs. Mm-hmm. I get it. I know that we're nostalgic for it and the promise of it. I get it. I've heard it. I'm ready to hear something else. And with this film, and, and one of the things I do like about Anderson's films is I think that he is an unabashed romantic. Mm-hmm. And... One of the things that I talk a lot about with Kim Morgan in the second episode of this show is how how much it how hard it hit me when I saw this film about how it, it really strikes that universal tone that we all know, which is that person you're probably not supposed to be with. Mm-hmm. The one that got away and should have gotten away, but you can't stop thinking about her. Yeah. And you can't let go of her and you can't help but wonder who she's with. And like the song, the Neil Young song, Journey Through the Past, in that great scene in the middle of the movie, when he says, Will you think of me and wonder if I'm fine? I mean, we've all done that where we know this person's no good, but geez, I hope she's thinking about me. I really hope she misses me. I hope she's wondering if I'm okay, even if I never hear from her. And uh, even if she doesn't come to the window when I'm, you know, lighting her trees on fire in her front yard and you know, throwing rocks at her windows, which I haven't done, but maybe mm-hmm. you don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I much prefer the romanticism of the film to the almost bitter sadness and anger in the book. That's interesting. And when you talk about the Neil Young song, what's notable to me about that and, and something I really did like about the movie is that was really the kind of the only – okay boomer song in the film it, <laughs> it, it resisted that impulse that almost no one can resist about making movies of that era to use really wall-to-wall recognizable songs from that era mm-hmm. uh, and i really like that because we've heard them i mean look i love i you know i watched um jimmy hendrix's performance at the monterey pop festival when criterion had it streaming after yeah. the filmmaker whose name i can't remember died and you go, oh, yeah, it's too bad that Jimi Hendrix has been absolutely murdered for me. That, you know, growing up in this in this era. You I, can't hear all along the watchtower without seeing a Vietnam Vista yeah. with bombs going off in the distance. And to watch the Monterey Pop Festival, which if you've never seen his performance of it, you really. It's incredible. It's incredible. And you go, I, it's impossible for me to even imagine what it was like to be there at that time period where you didn't know who. I've known who Jimi Hendrix was thanks to my hippie parents. <laughs> Since I was able to know what things were, you mm. know, so that but you watch it and you go, he's fucking, he's playing it with his teeth, <laughs> and he's just like humping the air, and I'm just sure that the ladies in that crowd were just uh, liquefied 
Um, he's Jimmy. He's Jimmy, and, and it's so amazing. But you can't do that. I recently rewatched Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, which is a movie that I again like. Uh, it's not completely successful, and again, it's it's a book that doesn't need a film. Yeah, and I, I would I would I counter to what I'm saying now. I actually think that that is an adaptation that is less successful because it cuts out so much of um, some of the political underpinnings mm-hmm. of the book. You know, the the ending of the book, I guess, spoiler alert, <laughs> for a 1971 uh, published novel, um, the scene at the end where um, Raul Duke and his attorney are at that drive-through for the burned-out building yeah. trying to find the American dream, and they find out it burned down five years ago. You know, removal of text like that from the film, it just makes it a Cheech and Chong movie. More or less. A, a, a gorgeous Cheech and Chong movie, but a Cheech and Chong movie nonetheless. No offense to Cheech and Chong, whom I love, but there's ultimately it's just it's a screwball film. Well, it is a screwball film, and I think, I mean, like a lot of other you know great writers, it comes off as cartoonish, and and his prose isn't. He didn't write it to be read out loud, yeah. and like a lot of prose, when read out loud, and it's the curse of a lot of um, movies. Actually, that I think Inherent Vice sidesteps and correct me that the the narrator is a device of the film. Yeah, um, it was just a way for Anderson to be able to include more of those the the lyrical wild yeah. the wild ass stretches of Pinchonian prose. Get to get that into the film. I thought it worked, yeah. and it worked because it wasn't somebody sitting at a desk writing. And there is a scene in *Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas* where Hunter S. Thompson is literally typing, and you—it's—it's yeah. it's the great thing that he wrote, and it's about the same topic of, you know, you can see where the water broke, and you yeah. can see where the tide came the back way in. It finally rolled back. Yeah, and and that's gorgeous, but like, you know, you have some guy typing, and and <laughs> that's just never good. And the 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 pure cinema of watching Johnny Depp slowly type at a typewriter. Yeah. There are things about that movie that are do work and, mm-hmm. and, and are fun, but I would say, like the again, the music is very obvious for a lot of it, until at the end when they use Dead Kennedys, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, period inappropriate, but I actually like that. And, yeah. and it was kind of refreshing to break out of that mold of, like, music that when Hunter S. Thompson liked it in, you know, 1971 was really insane and, and you know, balls-to-the-wall music, and now... Again, I I grew up with hippie parents, and, and I'm I'm grateful for that. But like I I've heard all this. I am. It's hard for me to to like enjoy the Beatles or any of those things in the the way that I think you probably should. Because, uh, well, Jordan, after our talk thus far about inherent vice, I think it's hard for you to enjoy anything. And in fact, know, I'd like to ask you to leave. Fair enough. I will say this as well, and this is just another another uh, angle at this. The movie I watched immediately before Inherent Vice, I watched the night before. Um, was um oh my god it just the name of it just fell out of my head uh, in the cut ooh that's a good that's movie a, <laughs> i don't know why i turned into Barry white all of a sudden when you <laughs> in the cut ooh, ooh. Have, have you uh, you know uh, priscilla page on on twitter has been She's really an ardent supporter ardent of that supporter film. of it and, and it's a great movie it is I a, think. it's a great movie and i've just recently as as a man become very aware of this whole idea of these very good, strong feminist films that were like pulverized at the box office. This film was totally brushed aside upon release. And I remember it very clearly. And I remember that I, having never seen the film, had these very strong opinions about Meg Ryan fucked up her face. And it's just, I don't know, some bad movie, some desperate attempt for her to not be cute anymore. Um, You know, based on me being a, a, a shitty 20-something or whatever, mm-hmm. and also just the fact that, like, 
we were like that was the take on the film when it came out. And this was not like some movie that critics were championing. I'm sure some were, but very few were. Most of At them. At the time, it was very cynically viewed as, oh, this is her nude scene movie. This yeah. is where she's. This is this is her. I'm a grown up, you guys. Yeah. Film and it and people seem to totally forget that it was directed by Jane Campion. Who's, That's who's fucking amazing. Who's amazing, and the cinematography of it is is so great. As I, I don't know the technique you use to have so much of it be out of focus and just have one portion of the frame mm-hmm. in focus. Um, and you know, amazing performances. She's great. I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee's always great. Mark Ruffalo's great. And it's a really interior film that it, it feels very personal to me. And I feel like you know something about whoever you want to assign authorship to, whether yeah. it's uh, whether it's Susan Moore, Susanna Moore. I don't remember the author's exact name. I can't remember. Um, or it's Jane Campion or Meg Ryan or whoever. I mean, you are seeing somebody kind of open themselves up. And I feel like if I were to watch Inherent Vice a few more times, I might get in there. But I don't feel like the veins of it, like the muscle of it is right up there on the screen. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like, and, and I know because you've tweeted it, um, the the scene where Joaquin Phoenix talks about, you know, what he can and can't live with. I'm not oh, quoting it exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a scene towards the end where um, Shasta has reappeared after having disappeared aboard the, the Golden Fang for a three-hour tour, mm-hmm. and he's at least able to confirm that she's alive. But he's very torn up and twisted about what she's been doing and or maybe has even been forced to do. And he's still trying to figure out which is which. And he's discovered that Coy Harlingen, uh, this supposedly dead sax player who is really alive but is actually a government snitch, but at the same time is being kept essentially hostage from his daughter. And he's sitting there thinking about all these things, trying to decide what, what the fuck to do, who to rescue, if anybody to rescue. And he's talking about how, you know, sort of Lige asks him, you know, put it another way, what are you, what's going to keep you up at night when all of this is over? And he says, saxophone players and the little kid blues. And, you know, little girl not being able to see her dad anymore, like, that doesn't sit right with me. And yeah, that, that, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. That, I love, I am such a sucker for that. You know, speaking of best films of the past decade, I will straight up knife fight anyone that doesn't at least consider the nice guys on their list. And the deadness of your face right now, as I, I said, that is it. giving. Oh, Jesus! I haven't Christ. seen it. Jesus Christ! <laughs> um, that the the I'm a big sucker for the. All right, well, another film that is very similar, uh, written by the same man, The Long Kiss Goodnight. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, I, yes. I am a big sucker for the. Loser detective who just wants to do one good thing, mm-hmm. and so yeah, that when Doc is talking about what he can't live with, what he can't abide, that gets to me. I no, that is, and, and there are, you know, if I was going to talk about my my favorite parts of the film, um, that scene, which I'm glad you flagged because it might have flown by. It, everything is very muted for a lot of the film, and that's not a criticism. That's just I, I feel like I might have not really caught how deep that moment was. It was really mm-hmm. good. The initial scene of just was she sad. You know, kids get those, you know, the, yeah, the little kid the, blues. Which you said they get that sometimes. Yeah, that is a beautiful statement. I would also say the Ouija board scene oh, uh, yeah. was probably my favorite scene in the movie because I did think um, it was a really perfect distillation of that kind of moment that is, well, I guess it's okay to make Woody Allen references. He made movies. Um, Annie <laughs> Hall captures that same moment with the lobsters on the floor, that thing that... Yeah. 
that couples have or anybody who is really close will have with somebody, which is something that you it doesn't make any sense why it's funny or good or why the worst nights are the best nights and that that it's because you're with that other person. And if you just went out there by yourself and got lost in the rain, you wouldn't be sitting in the doorstop laughing about it. You'd be really angry, but it was because there were two of you. And like, there, there are really beautiful things in the movie. I, you know, and the more we talk about it, the more I feel like you know, I, I am going to watch it again. I, I went ahead and bought it. Oh, I bless you. I didn't, I didn't just rent it. Um, and I'm not sure. It's interesting because I'm not sure how the actual bulk of the film plays into that a lot of the time. That I'm not, you know, the scenes with like Martin Short. Or which are f- funny, you know. Um, mm-hmm. uh. He's so mad at me, everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were friends. We are friends. Um, mm. And again, like I feel like if I talk about the fact that I don't feel like I I see a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson in his films, that I don't feel like he's opening up and he's making movies of observation about other people, I think you would, again, like a movie that you can make some very obvious parallels with would be The Big Lebowski. I mean, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, all that is true of The Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski, in a lot of ways, is more, it's very facile, and, and it's a comedy, and I'm not sure how many universal truths there are in it. I love that movie, to be clear. I love that movie. Um, I'm just saying I'm pointing out the flaws in it just to say like I I can't stand here and and make some kind of aesthetic argument about Inherent Vice not being a great movie because it has all the things that could be. I just I maybe I just need to watch it again. You know what it is? It's and you know I've been thinking about this a lot since I'm hosting a podcast about a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Mm-hmm. It's about love, baby. <laughs> all of his movies they're about love. Yeah. I mean, all of his films are about how much we come to love the people that we're not born into or born around, you know, whether it's uh, in Punch Drunk Love mm-hmm. or whether it's uh, Daniel and his adopted little boy in There Will Be Blood. And, you know, spoiler for you, um, Freddie Quell and Master in The Master. Mm-hmm. And, my God, it, it's in Sydney and it's in Boogie Nights with the the love you have for, for your, the, the families that we create as adults. Sure. Um, and again, uh, Jesus, uh, 20 year old spoiler for you. Magnolia is, uh, about, you know, the people that we love and how we choose to love and the mistakes we make when we are in love. And yeah, and I, I, I actually, I would disagree and say that I, I, I very much feel Paul Thomas Anderson in this film mm-hmm. because it's a love movie. All his movies, they're all, they're love stories. And he, he, I think all of his films ultimately, you know, a while back, the th- the thing to say about PTA is all his films are about father figures, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's you know Burt Reynolds or the the multitude of father figures that are in Magnolia. Again, spoiler for you, or the father fig- figure of Sydney, and so on and so forth. It's also in the the Master, and there will be blood, obviously. But I don't, I don't really see that in his movies. I just see all his movies that they're just about the people that we love as adults, the people that we choose to love, or. Mm-hmm. Choose isn't, choose isn't the right word. I don't think Doc has a say in his feelings about Shasta Fay. Right. But the people we are compelled to love as adults, the people that we're not bound by law to love, like our parents and our brothers and our sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, I see that. I see that in this movie. I see that. And that's, and I guess being of that opinion, that's how I feel I do see him in his films. I see this guy who's just constantly ruminating on why do we love who we love? How do we love who we love? How do we forgive the people that we love? And and I think this film, the the variant 
on that theme that this film asks is how do we live without the people that we love what do we do when they're gone and some people like doc they just quietly pine and knock about back and forth trying to to rescue them Mm -hmm. other people are like um, hope harlingen jenna malone in case you don't remember the name (laughs) who there's you know there's a big thread in the book about how people especially of this generation featured in the in the the novel and the film they're unable to accept that someone has died that um and i believe sort even has a line uh, in the narration during the hope harlingen scene where uh, Doc had come to find that so many people of this time, they're simply unable to accept that someone has died, whether it's a loved one or even like an old high school class member. No, a body, got, a body must have been mixed up in the morgue. Um, there, or in the case of Hope Harlingen, there's too much money in my bank account. Right around the time he died, it has to mean something. It has to mean something. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what this film is. Uh, it's about feeling the outline of the person that is missing within you. And needing that narrative to mean something, needing it to be grander than just this emptiness that you feel. It has to it has to all have been for something. And, you know, the the high school notebook, the high school yearbook inscription uh, that I keep quoting uh, throughout these episodes is the Joan Didion line about how we tell ourselves stories in order Mm -hmm. to live. And that's what all these characters are doing. They're all telling Doc their story and saying, give me the narrative out of this. Give me the conspiracy theory out of this. Just make sense of this. So it's not for nothing. And that's what I see. You see, I, I should have said this at the very beginning of, of the podcast because, I mean, because if the answer is it's because I'm stupid and that's why <laughs> I don't, like, I respond to his films, I'll accept that because everything you said makes total sense. And it makes me want to watch, you know, um, this movie again, which I which I do intend to do, and, and maybe give him another chance in general. And, again, like I, from the very beginning, I, was, I can't defend it. It's just just how you feel it's just how i feel hey, you know and what doc mrs shasta Faye, he's got a girlfriend mm-hmm. he's got he's got penny the the assistant da downtown sure. he's got a girlfriend <laughs> but he can't help that shasta Faye is the one that when she walks in his door right that you shasta Faye. he can't he can't <laughs> help it and for whatever reason you're just not feeling it and you decided to come to my to my podcast to my to my <laughs> studio yep and and tell and spit in my face. Spit in your face. I can't believe I'm comping your parking today. Oh, I was going to ask um, about that. Yeah, no, you're good. Uh, I mean, no, I'm yeah. well, maybe not now. I don't know. We'll, we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll talk, talk after about the show. Um, on that note, we've agreed at least on where to get the best chili in Springfield, Missouri. Again, Casper's on wall. It's oh, you guys, you don't yeah. you don't even know. Oh, by the way, just to, to be clear, it has a, a vibe that would not be. Ad- wrong for this movie caspers caspers you yeah know? yeah it, it definitely has like um a, a leftover tang of the 60s um that is a really good line thank you a uh, leftover tang of the 60s it's well no you know professional writer no big deal but um <laughs> it you know it's decorated with this art that some of that art has been in three different caspers buildings because you know yeah. like caspers used to be in the used parking to, lot yeah. as you know of aunt martha's um which is probably when I started going when I was very, very young. Like, I, literally, they used to have my kindergarten photo uh, on the wall when they had, not just mine, they had other kids too. But, like, I mean, <laughs> but this was in the 80s. Um, you know, I feel like Journey Through the Past the should slowly start cranking up <laughs> in the right. background as we're talking about you this. Because you could see where the where the wave rolled back. Yeah, and, oh, uh, oh, God. Because Aunt Martha's isn't there anymore either. 
you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to do another episode at Casper's. We'll, we'll record another episode at Casper's. We'll go home for Christmas. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we'll record it there, and I'm sure they'll allow it. Well, you know, they have, like, normal business hours now. They, they, they In my youth, it was uh, they closed at 3, and they were closed in the summers because the owner had kids, and now they have a new owner who doesn't have kids. And uh, we can get uh, chili on, on a weekend. Yeah, and like, like, like Doc. Yeah. You, know, I've got an epi- you know I've got an office of my own now. It's a day <laughs> job and everything. <laughs> Casper's, it's, it's like a real diner now and everything. I did, and I think, um, I'm not, what, we have a, a scene of this film that we haven't even Yeah, yeah, we're going to have to get into that get pretty into soon. It. Unless you want to keep talking about the fine dining of Southwest Missouri, because I've got opinions on that. Well, I, we could go for a while. I feel like the audience probably is clamoring for more. Yes, um, I mean, I'm sure they're they're dying for more chili tips. Yeah, for Southwest Missouri. For Southwest Missouri, which is, you know, a huge portion of my listenership. Is, yeah, is, I would is, think is so. The, is the Ozarks. A lot of, a lot of, yeah. <laughs> a lot of Bodark people listening on, in. On that note, we're gonna we're gonna go watch this scene. We're gonna come back. We're gonna have some um, some grilled raccoon recipes for you, and we'll have Jordan's take on the 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 story of the missing neighborhood in Artesia. Morning, Doc. Hi, hey, morning, Petunia. Oh, I love your afro. Oh yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Oh, Doc, you have someone waiting in your office. Doctor? Doctor? Hey, man. Sorry to uh, keep you waiting. Doctor Spartello. That's right. What is my brother? Peace. I'm Tariq Khalil. Cool. Sit down. Uh, man, how can I help you today? There's this white boy I was in the joint with. Aryan Brotherhood. We did some business and uh, now we're both out and he still owes me. I can't tell you the details, but it's a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. How about his name? Glenn Charlock. Mm-hmm. And um, you know where he's staying now? I know where he works. He's a bodyguard for this building named Wolfman. I'm asking, Mr. Cleo, how'd you hear about me? Sledge. Sledge Poteet. Wow. Flash in the past. Yeah. He said you helped him out of a situation back in 67. Mm-hmm. First time I got shot at. If you don't mind an obvious question, you uh, know where this Glenn Charlock works. Why not uh, just go over there and look him up directly? Well, because Wolfman likes to surround himself with the Aryan Brotherhood day and night. And see, outside of Glenn, I ain't never liked the company of Nazis. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <clears throat> send some white guy to get his head hammered? More or less. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're inside, are you in a, a gang? The Black Gorilla family. And you say you did business with who now? The Aryan Brotherhood? Listen, we found we shared some of the similar opinions about the U.S. government. That's all. I can dig. There's something else. Matter of fact, there is. My old street gang, the Arteza Crips. Mm -hmm. See, when I came home from Chino, I went looking for them and found it ain't just them gone, but the whole damn turf itself. What do you mean gone? Man, I'm talking not there. Grind up into little pieces, seagulls picking all over it. Man, I thought I was tripping. 
Got my car, drove around, came back, still gone. Nothing, nobody. Just a ghost town with a big sign that said, coming to this site soon with a big ass ugly picture of some houses. And guess who the builder is? Mm, let me guess. Wolfman again. Hey, can you uh, show me up here on the map? Long, sad history of LA land use. Mexican families bounced out of Chavez Ravine to build Dodger Stadium. American Indians swept out of Bunker Hill for the music center. And now Tariq's neighborhood, bulldozed aside, Channel View Estates. anything else just to to go back to to what I was just saying because I'm I'm narcissistic and I'm self-obsessed uh right there you have a character who's not only just missing a person he's missing an entire neighborhood mm-hmm. and again that you know I know I'm really I'm really gonna bang the drum on that that to me is what this film is it's about how much we miss something that was lost whether it's a husband or sax player or a daughter or a girlfriend or an entire neighborhood or an era and I think to me that's that's what this this film is. It's about, you know, if inherent vice is all that we can't insure against, it's about that thing that none of us can insure against. It's about time and what time takes from us. We, no, that's true. And it's interesting. That is such a dominant and reoccurring theme in Los Angeles-based crime stories. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that is because for the same reason we kind of see the holes in, say, Mormonism or Scientology as opposed to some more established religions is is that the crimes that created Los Angeles are so much more recent than the crimes that committed that created Manhattan or something yeah. like that. And and that that's why you can look at, you know, the Chavez Ravine was a part of, um, you know, uh, the Black Dahlia by Elroy and a lot of yeah. other yeah. crime fiction of that era that uh, Chinatown is about water theft, that even Who Framed Roger Rabbit is about the very <laughs> real crime of... Uh, I'm going to get real nerdy about uh, street gangs in a minute, so I'll start here and say so. And this is why you, I well, asked you to do this. To scene, do this, scene. I, I knew this was your shit. Um, so I live in Atwater Village, um, and uh, the Toonerville Rifa is the established street gang of uh, Atwater. It's not really anything anymore, but they were the dominant street gang of the, of the 20th century in Atwater, and they were called Tuners because of the cartoons that were painted on the streetcars that go up and that went up and down Glendale Avenue mm. or Glendale Boulevard excuse me um, if you've ever been to Atwater Village uh, the main drag is a very very wide street mm. and it's very wide because it had a streetcar in the center of it now so they had cartoon characters painted on the streetcars uh, which is a the plot of who framed Roger Rabbit is the destruction of those streetcars and B the fact that there were actual cartoon characters painted on them that inspired a street gang, and also the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit are cartoon characters who are concerned about the destruction of the streetcars is <laughs> is a, a, a detail that is just mind-blowing, and I'm not even sure how, if that was a conscious part. I've never read the novel. It is based on a novel, Who Framed Isn't Roger it? Rabbit. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I've never read it, and I'd be interested to see if maybe that goes into more detail about that. Um, 
So everything you said about a person missing this real place and, and, and this sense of loss, and you're thinking about these themes, and maybe this is my problem, because here's what I'm thinking of in that scene, are the crime anachronisms uh, that he is he is talking about here. So the Aryan Brotherhood was formed in like 1964, 1965, San Quentin. Oh, shit. We're getting deep. We're, getting, yeah. we're going fast now. Um, basically, you know, in the 60s, um, the prisons in California and other places, but in California, were desegregated. And as they were desegregated, race-based um, gangs popped up. Um, so you're going to see the birth of, of Laime. You're going to see the black gorilla family, which is mentioned here and which is correct. And then a little later on, you're going to see the formation of the Aryan Brotherhood. Um, and I bring that up because it's not it's not out of the question that there would that they would use the name Aryan Brotherhood, although at this point it's a very small organization. Um, and it's not out of the question that maybe it spread to Chino by then. It did start in San Quentin. Um, the idea that there would be enough paroled Aryan Brotherhood people that he could surround himself on the outside with Aryan Brotherhood people. Is it possible? Can I tell you it couldn't happen? No, I couldn't do that. However, what I, I feel like we're going to see really quickly Thomas Pinchon poke up behind the door here and just like blow dart you in the net. <laughs> well, again, I will grant all of that. Um, his claim that in the year 1970 he was a member of a crip set before he went to jail. I'm sorry, that's impossible. Uh-oh. <laughs> Raymond Washington founded the Crips in either 1969 <laughs> or in 1970, but he didn't have separate sets by then. You know, it wasn't until he, like, uh, met with uh, Tookie Williams or Wilson uh, in, like, 1971, 1972 that the gangs really started to set up as separate sets and things like that. So the idea in, like, 1968, 1969 that the Crips were real power, it's really interesting because there's a whole thing you can get into because... 1970 was kind of the final destruction of the Black Panther Party mm -hmm. in California, and a lot of people credit that destruction with the formation of these new street gangs. Obviously, there were always street gangs in Los Angeles. Um, there was actually a, a group that I'm going to use a word here that is not the worst word I could use, but it's the name of the gang, and I think it's important to not hide from it. Um, there was a gang called the Spook Chasers. Um, which was a gang made up entirely of like white guys in hot rod cars who would win, win around and enforce redlining. Um, Jesus. And that was something I desperately wanted to put in, in the TV show LA Confidential uh, I, at some point. Um, you know, there were all the car gangs, there were uh, like a lot, a lot of, of Mexican gangs starting in the 20s and 30s. Um, but, you know, they, they lived a different kind of life and, and uh, it wasn't what the Crips turned out to be. And a lot of people think that. Raymond Washington obviously had like uh, an ambition that other street criminals didn't have, but it was only that vacuum of missing the Black Panther Party that allowed the Crips to rise up. But that's something that happened in the 70s. Um, so the idea that he would have been part of that and then gone to jail and then come out and, and now it's 1970, it's simply not credible. Well, for one, at first, that is that is a wildly fascinating history and a great adjunct to this episode. And two, I didn't know if were there were there any other things that you know that I passionately love that you would like to poke holes into, <laughs> or or uh, savage or or anything <laughs> like that. I mean, well, I'm a big fan. And speaking of King Phoenix, I love you are never really here. Oh no, that if is you, a fantastic if you would like to abuse movie. That film. No, I have nothing bad to say about that. <laughs> oh, that movie. one you'll leave alone. Okay, well, oh, that's I love good. that movie. That's great. Um, 
I will say when I walked out of it, I saw it in New York City, one of those great rainy days in New York City where you go see a movie in the middle of the day. I did walk immediately up to the Strand bookstore mm-hmm. and buy a copy of, of the book, You Were Never Really Here, so I could find out what happened in the film that I had just watched. <laughs> um, and I will tell you this, the book doesn't really tell you either. No, it doesn't. It's it's a cliffhanger in it, a way. It, I, I mean, I will, spoiler, I'm sorry, everybody. Spoiler, I actually, I'm not okay with how that book ended. I... It is one of the things that I much prefer in the film version is, you know, I, I get the sense that Ames is, I, and he's, he's spoken about this. Time out, guys, on Inherent <laughs> Vice. We're going to get back to it, I swear to God. As I've said so many episodes before, this is an Inherent Vice podcast. There are going to be a lot of digressions, mm-hmm. a lot of Pinchonian um, footnotes. But I swear to God, we'll always loop back to where we started. Um, but I believe Ames has talked about making this a series the way the um the the walker series oh. the parker series excuse oh, me oh parker novels interesting the parker novels where walker was the film version but yeah the, the way that the parker novels are just this basically uh a blank-faced badassery over a course of a, a series of books with this amazing character and i think he's spoken about cr- uh, creating a series of of novellas and stories that spring forth from this character and I think that's that's very much why the film kind of literally ends with a head splitting uh, uh, to be continued. Mm-hmm. But um, I would also say I, I like that you had to you're like I have to go I have to go read the book now to understand what the movie was because much like Inherent Vice and I speak about this in uh, episode three with Kaylee Donaldson. I love this new cinematic perversity. It's one of my favorite things of trusting Joaquin Phoenix one of our most marble-mouthed actors mm-hmm. with all or with so much of the expository dialogue mm-hmm. in these neo-noirs, especially in You Were Never Really Here, where he's literally been shot through the face and his teeth have turned to powder, and he's supposed to update us on who this mysterious senator is <laughs> and what his connection is to a sex ring. And while talking to someone else who's bleeding to death on his kitchen floor who is almost as equally unintelligible as he is, yeah. Lynn Ramsey... Thank you so much for that. <laughs> PTA, thank you so much for that, too. There's something so fun about watching a man who you cannot understand without subtitles deliver all of the very Raymond Chandler-esque, this is how this connects to that, and this is who killed the butler with the candlestick, mm-hmm. and blah, 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 blah. I very much enjoy that. But looping back to Inherent Vice, the movie that I love, that you're basically, you are single-handedly crafting the IMDb goofs page for. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, you, you brought up an interesting point and something I wanted to talk about, uh, which is, what is it about L.A. Noirs that makes land use and abuse such an intrinsic part of the story? And I think you're right that it's so much more a part of our recent history. This isn't something that happened, you know, during you know the the, the gang of New York, the gangs of yeah. New York days. This is something that is within um, the lifetimes of people who are still alive. I mean, and you know, there's a there's a really great book. And you might have read it, called City of Courts, I was, Excavating I was, yeah. the Future in Los Angeles. It's by urban theorist and historian Mike Davis. And he charts how modern L.A. has been shaped by these powerful and secret forces of uh, and the histories within it, within the city. And, you know, he does go on about how large chunks of Chavez Ravine were seized by eminent domain and the Federal Housing Act of 1949. And... How the city, and you have to say the city with a capital C, like Mm -hmm. it's a living, breathing thing because it is, 
uh, basically cheated the residents of that area out of their homes by initially offering them a cash settlement to move and then immediately cutting that in half and dropping the prices so precipitously to create this community-wide panic that if we don't take this money and go now, by the time they finally force us out to leave, you know, it's going to be for like a dollar. And um, that became this 10-year struggle known as uh, the Battle of Chavez Ravine. And not to sound like Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor in the Superman movies, Mm -hmm. but uh, land is the ultimate commodity out here. And this portrayal of the city as this entity that can just take for its own crude and cruel and craven reasons, um, isn't that a real-world analog to the behavior of the Golden Fang in this movie? This Just that mysterious force that, to quote PTA, just seems to fuck it up for the good guys Mm -hmm. among us. And there's something about L.A., as you said, that you you can only make that kind of movie here. Chinatown belongs here. Right. But I would also agree that Inherent Vice belongs here. And I I do like that uh, the film touches on that and about that force that, like the Golden Fang, just kind of can sweep in and clear out an entire neighborhood of people. And there's a a passage in the book that uh, Tariq Khalil, you know, Doc is asking him, you know, about the, the, the missing Artesia, and he's like, well, you know, trying to figure out what happened. And Khalil says, it's WW2. And before the war, a lot of South Central was still a Japanese neighborhood. Those people got sent to camps. We came in to be the next. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Doc's like, so, oh, so now it's your turn to get moved along. And, and Khalil nods, and he's like, this is more white man's revenge. Freeway up by the airport wasn't enough. This is revenge for Watts. And it's such a minor part of this film. But again, it's one of those those moments where PTA is able to take a very specific and almost prerequisite part of film of LA film noir, the the land use and abuse, and Rubik's Cube it back into his theme of just missing the hell out of something. And in this case, it's a man literally just missing the neighborhood where he grew up. And his neighborhood street gang, which is not time correct, <laughs> as you would point out. But yeah, it's it's, and that's that's the kind of thing that really keeps bringing me back to this film, and hopefully will bring you back. Is that kind of very it's a low key hum, but it's constantly going on in the film. These these wild connections like that. Yeah. Where if you happen to have read uh, City of Courts, as I kind of figured you were going to say you had. Yeah, I have. Um, having that knowledge and being able to watch that scene, you're realizing on how many different levels this moment is working on and how it's incorporating so many film noir tropes and facets to its own end. And another one of those would be, you know, there's the, (laughs) you almost have to have now, if you make a detective movie, you've got to include the bit where the detective is introduced to one mystery, he starts to solve it, or he starts to work it, while at the same time, someone else totally different brings to him another mystery to work on, totally separate case. Mm-hmm. And along the way, we eventually find out that they're one in the same case. They're all connected. And I, it always it always makes me laugh in this film how he dispenses with that in the first 15 minutes. Like, there's no mystery about it. The Within, like, a minute and a half of this new case coming in, Mickey Wolfman's name comes up. Yeah. And, like, a cartoon character, Doc, just tries to hum his way through it like no one's paying attention. <laughs> As he writes Paranoia Alert and realizes he's in the midst of that. But, again, in Pinchonian fashion, 
it's so funny to me that that doesn't just happen this one time. Dog gets like seven different cases in yeah. this film. And they basically all lead back to the same place, Shasta Fay and the Golden Thing. No, it, it's true, and it's something that you learn when you're crafting mysteries that um, that a little bit of coincidence is okay. And, mm-hmm. in fact, it, it suggests these great things at work that, you know, you can see that in Elroy. You can see it in, in you know, a lot of, of these kind of novels. And it's so perfect for this paranoid moment and, and that almost meta aspect of him writing paranoia alert yeah. when it happens and just saying nope this is this is what's going on guys he knows it's weird so it's okay that you know it's weird <laughs> um it works really well and i mean there's a lot of things to talk about i just i, I want to about city of quartz uh when i when i watched this scene and i had all these thoughts about what i thought were perhaps an- anachronisms which by the way i'm not one of those people who goes like and that makes the movie suck like i don't care <laughs> it's just something to talk about it's interesting to me um, the history of LA street gangs. I pulled two books off my shelf to to check to make sure I wasn't just um, imagining this, you know. Um, and one of them was City of Quartz. So I was actually looking at that last night. There's actually a map at the back of the book that is a map of Crip yep. uh, territories in 1973. Um, and it, if you looked at that map, you'd go, oh, yeah, no, what this guy's saying isn't crazy. There were Crip sets in 1973. I was like, I don't think there were in 1970. Again, if somebody wants to come with some kind of you know, documentation that I'm wrong, I'd accept it. Um, the other well, book- do, you, do you want to come on the episode where we have Thomas Pinchon come out of hiding? And he's going <laughs> to, do you want to do like a, a tete a tete? I, no, I, he must do his research. He must know all this. <laughs> um, and again, the Aryan Brotherhood, I pulled this book, um, a fascinating book. And I believe the title is it's some combination of these words, um, a history of the radical California prison movement. Mm-hmm. Um, California radical prison movement is probably actually what it is. And I actually just I went through the, the index and it actually it's a history mostly of, of the 60s. And, and they don't they don't mention the Aryan Brotherhood. They mention the black gorilla family, but the black gorilla family was much more political. The Aryan Brotherhood was never really political. There were. Uh, white power people from the outside who were working with prisoners and talking to prisoners and trying to actually inject like a white supremacist viewpoint. And I'm never going to say that the Aryan Brotherhood aren't white nationalists. They absolutely are. It's just not what they are mainly. They are mainly a crime organization that is race-based mm-hmm. as opposed to a race-based organization that does crime. Uh, call that splitting hairs? Maybe. Um, <laughs> And none of it's going to get you, you know, invited to to like the Christmas party. Um, I, well, I was the, really, Ari- the the Aryan Brotherhood Christmas party. Or just well, no, Christmas that one you would general. get into if you were, uh, you know, it's just again like uh, to jump ahead a, a little bit and just to talk about the Aryan Brotherhood. You know, I'm sure they used some Nazi uh, symbols at that period of time. Their main symbol at that time was actually the shamrock. Uh, and still is today, in fact. They, I don't know if this is still the way, but there was a period of time, at least in the California prison system, that if you were just some Boston dude who, who came into prison with a uh, shamrock tattoo, uh, you had to get it covered immediately because if the Aryan Brotherhood saw you with a shamrock tattoo and you weren't an Aryan Brotherhood member, they would take it off for you. Jesus. Yeah, and how many guys are out there with shamrock tattoos? Um, more than two. <laughs> um, I wouldn't know. My my tattoos are a little bit more niche. Yeah, yeah. It's a five-leaf uh, shamrock. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but I did. I pulled City of Quartz. And, and it, yeah, if you haven't read City of Quartz, it is like an essential document. It's an essential document to read um, about Los Angeles if you're interested in crime. I'm, I'm not going to talk I've, uh, too much. I, I'm starting a new book that is very Los Angeles and Hollywood-based crime. 
right now. Um, I also I will freely and happily plug a new novel called Your House Will Pay by Steph Cha. Mm-hmm. Um, oh God. Have you have you read it or not yet? But I, it's it's on my it's on my queue. Um, Steph is uh, Korean American, grew up here in the Los Angeles area, and she has written a very good book about the racial tension between uh, black people and Korean people in Los Angeles in the '90s, which resulted in murders and 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 riots and and a lot of really really bad crimes that kind of got swallowed up by the Rodney King case. Um, but I mean, there was a horrific murder, a real life horrific murder, where a uh, a, a Korean shop owner um, shot a young black girl in the head as she was leaving the store because the girl was rowdy, and it was I mean pretty much a straight up execution, and, and no charges were filed. And all of that can be attributed to real estate at the end of the day. That is all, you know, Korean Americans, uh, and most of them. When I say Korean Americans, most of these people were were Koreans who had moved to America and were, and were struggling to find their place there. And they didn't have enough money to open stores in, in other neighborhoods, and so they were encroaching on black neighborhoods. And it, I, encroaching is a word that has some kind of, like, bad connotation, and I don't even mean that. I just mean, like, you know, these things were all shoved together by Los Angeles. Uh, when I did the L.A. Confidential pitch, I had this, uh, you know, uh, L.A. Confidential set in 1952, and I think it was 1951 where... Um, I would talk about this in the pitch, that real estate became the number one industry in Los yeah. Angeles in like 1951, 1952. Um, and it still is today. You know, when people talk about the industry here, they mean the, the Hollywood industry, but that is not the big money in Los Angeles. It is, and it will always be real estate. And uh, if, I mean, it's like I said, it's the, I mean, I said it as a joke, but it's the Gene Hackman, Lex Luthor thing. Yeah. It's land. It's the only thing they're not making more of. <laughs> right, exactly. And, uh, you know, if everything keeps catching on fire, they're actually making less of it now. Yes. Uh, and that's going to be a whole thing too. You know, the uh, well, we go off on a whole climate change thing. Um, you know, Wait, that exists. I, I the ash on my car suggests it does. <laughs> um, but I just uh, just to pivot a little bit off a lot of things you said there. It's interesting to talk about the idea of this as a noir film and what noir even means anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, you talked about uh, L.A. Confidential um, and and how much I fought to keep a lot of the tropes. Of, um, of of noir out of it. And this, I think, um, I really like how little nods there are to kind of the more obvious tropes of, of film noir, which I think is a, a, obviously it's an amazing genre, but I'm really ready for filmmakers to start, move past it. It's It's been a long time. And I think that this borrows, you know, the, the plot structure mm-hmm. from noir, but it doesn't, I don't think, borrow a lot of, of you know, visual cues or music cues. You know, the lighting is very appropriate for like the time period, and it's gorgeous. But mm-hmm. it's not, you know, heavy slashes of shadows or, or no, things like no, that. not at all. And that's it's something I actually love about this film. And I say that as someone who actually, you know, I love neo noir and I love noir. And you know me enough to know that's basically all I talk about. You know, if I'm on Twitter, that's all I'm going to go on about mm-hmm. is, and you know, but that's something I, I do enjoy about this film. And that's something that PTA specifically said he wanted to mute in his approach to this film and uh, a direct quote from him in an interview when asked about you know how much was he trying to infuse this with that that neo-noir feeling he said you know the noir idea was something we were trying to get rid of sort of ignore that we kept thinking about trying to make a neil young song out of this mm. melancholy for the past kind of heartbroken at the way things have gone but still hopeful you can still tap your toe to it and, uh, you know, I brought that up before in the Kim Morgan episode, but I think it bears repeating that this is a neo-noir in that it 
it has the essential structure. There's a a woman that shows up with a mystery. There's a woman that goes missing because of that mystery. Mm-hmm. There are the obvious LA LA norisms as we're talking about. You know the 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 land power grabs. There's the the conspiratorial government forces uh, yeah. funneling uh, heroin from uh, Southeast Asia via the Vietnam War into America. Mm-hmm. There are all these, and of course, there's a wayward knockabout detective just trying to piece all this together in his head. And yet, most of the film, it's it seems totally disinterested with all of that. And again, I'm gonna I'll keep going back to it. It's a film that's just more about what it's like to miss someone. Yeah. And, you know, there's no Venetian blinds and there's no sh- a figure silhouette standing in the shadow that a single gun gunshot erupts from them and then they just disappear into the smog. Although there is a scene where Owen Wilson is dressed like Zoot from the Muppets and he disappears into the smog. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are none of those things. And it's actually really refreshing. It's, I agree. It's... it's and and when the tropes do appear, they're almost as a joke, like the the paranoia alert of two concurrent cases turning out to be connected. It's like a goof. Yeah. And it's it's that and that is something I also pre- I do appreciate about the book. You know, I'm not trying to slag it by saying I like the film more, but you can definitely feel Pinchon writing with a wry smile mm-hmm. as he's like, oh yeah, now what do they normally do in this kind of movie and what in this kind of story? Oh yeah, there's got to be a case that's connected and the detective doesn't know it. Right. Well, I'll just I'll just have him know it in the first five minutes and just get rid of it. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that in there because that's what you got to do when you tell this kind of story. And yeah, I I think that that is is very sharp. But I think it's also if you give the movie enough time, it is one of those things that you I think adds to the enjoyment of it because the movie is kind of elbowing you and whispering you to you and telling you, you know this is not what we're really about here. Right. This is not what we're really doing. And in some ways, to me, it's a lot more like. Um, it's a great end of the 70s neo-noir. This is an end of the 60s film. There's a great end of the 70s hangover movie, hangover slash hangout movie called Cutter's Way. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. And I've often I've contended that that would make, despite the kind of naked gun goofballery that works its way through this film, I do think that Inherent Vice and Cutter's Way would make a fantastic double feature because I think putting them together would allow them to speak to each other mm-hmm. and allow you to see more of the humor that's in Cutter's Way because Cutter's Way is a very funny film. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it's you get lost in the malaise of it so easily that it's hard to remember that it's just a, that's a funny film, especially in the first hour. And then I think that Cutter's Way speaks to Inherent Vice a bit and allows us to see how goddamn melancholy this film is. And how much it isn't interested in who shot the gun and, you know, hopping into a cab and pointing at the car and saying, you know, you follow this guy. And it's 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 much more just about the sadness of time passing. And so, yeah, that's my speech. That's my way of working in Cutter's Way, (laughs) which everyone should go see. Everyone, everyone should go see. I I say go see like it's in the theater. Go go see Cutter's Way, the the, the local multiplex. (laughs) It is. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, you could you could make a long list of, of the tropes that he does use. The uh, I was a big fan of the uh, knocking the detective out and just leaving him there. Oh yeah, that's another one. That's yeah. another one. The knockout. Yeah, classic, classic of that genre, uh, which is not a genre that I grew up loving. I didn't get into crime through noir. Um, I mean, I guess people say, oh well, Jim Thompson is noir. I think, mm-hmm. um, but it's a very different type. Yeah. Um, but I didn't get. I got into Jim Thompson because of the movie The Grifters, 
which is obviously a neo-noir. I mean, very much so. It's very obviously a, a nod to that era. Um, but I got into all of that because of Quentin Tarantino, probably, mm -hmm. um, and gangster rap. Um, I spend a lot of time when I'm, I'm talking about what I write about, talking about how, how much of my... Um, I, I would never use the... First of all, you should never refer to yourself as a noir writer because what do you do? Just walk around with a card saying noir writer. Uh, but I always just say <laughs> crime fiction because to mm -hmm. me that's much more... I mean, you just heard me talk about gangs for that long. Yeah. Like, that's more where I am. And I do think, you know, it's interesting you talk about these themes, the, the themes that Elroy deals with, which is almost entirely about redemption and the impossibility of redemption and then the necessity of, of redeeming yourself anyway, uh, and the idea of closure and the idea of compartmentalization, which is a huge thing uh, of, of his work. Those are, are really a lot of the themes I hit against, and I do think those are things you see more in organized crime fiction or, or or just pure crime fiction as opposed to like a noir necessarily um there's so many different directions this can go but i just have to say if you've never watched keith jardine the dean of mean um fight <laughs> chuck liddell i really really highly recommend it. i mean do you you know who Keith Jardine, just for those who might not be on the up and up, is the fighter who plays Puck Beaverton in Inherent Vice. Yeah, uh, he's the fellow with the swastika tattoo. That at one point that's a, a more a, that, that that might be a more a better <laughs> yeah. more specific description. You remember the guy with the tattoo on his face? Yeah, that's Keith Jardine. That's Keith Jardine. And and when I was when he first appeared on screen, I was like, Hey, is that Keith Dar Jardine, the Dean of Mean? Um, <laughs> Please keep. Please keep adding that each time. Come on, if you if my nickname was the Dean, I mean, <laughs> man, you'd know it. Um, and then I looked at his ears, and you can always tell the ears the, of the a cauliflower ears. Yeah, I it, frankly, it looked like maybe he'd had a little surgery to mm -hmm. get those reduced because they were not the little. You know, they turn into kind of like shrimp at mm -hmm. some point. Like the 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 ear just curls and 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 goes in on itself. Uh, Keith Jardine was a fighter who, who was in a kind of his prominence probably I don't know a decade ago. Um, I'm not real good about mm -hmm. dates, but um, he was always kind of like an underdog who would get thrown in against like the the biggest bruisers of the era at last minute and somehow managed to beat them. So he did it to Forrest Griffin and he did it to Chuck Liddell. And um, he has this very weird bobbing style. He doesn't really put his hands up the way you're supposed to, and he eats a lot of punches. He fights like Rocky Balboa. He does fight a little like, bit like Rocky whenever Balboa. Whenever you watch the Rocky films and you're like, this is the worst boxer in the world. No <laughs> one in real life can fight this way and, and not just get their ass handed to them. It is, you know, as a child, you are so thrilled by the Rocky movies, and then the moment you learn anything about boxing, Movies are still fun, but like those you, are some terrible fights. They're terrible fights. It's it literally awful. is just like I'm gonna put my hands down and you punch me, and then I'm gonna punch you, and then that's it, basically. That's, it. that's but, that, the, but that is how Keith Jardine. That that's more how he or less. Fights. Yeah, and um, I mean, I believe it's the Chuck Liddell fight is where he just essentially decided that Chuck Liddell kind of puts his lead foot forward a little too far, and he just started kicking him in in the in the leg. And does it for like fifteen minutes, <laughs> and by the end, Chuck Liddell just he you can't if you can't put any weight on one of your legs, you can't punch it anymore, yeah. and and he just it, it's like those kids who would play Street Fighter and they would just get into like the um, the foot sweep stance and just da -da 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 -da, you know. I'm a Dalsim man, so I know that I know <laughs> you, that move well. You know that move. It's kind of what he did to him. Is spamming right? Isn't yeah. that what you would call that? Is spamming? He would just spam a, a leg kick, and, and and like the fans are booing. I mean, they're probably not actually booing, but um, anyway, 
I, I, I don't know how many other guests you're going to have on are going to talk about their, their, their affection for uh, Keith Jardine, the dean of Maine. So I thought <laughs> it was really important that somebody... Probably very little. You might have to come back to that sequence <laughs> where uh, PCP opens the door, kicks you through it, slams the door shut. I love that scene. I, I've been uh, thinking a lot about PCP recently because... <laughs> a, Aren't we all? A, oh. what happened to PCP? Um, B, I've never, you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm well past my drug years, but um, in, in the thick of them, nobody ever rolled up on me and said, hey, Jordan, we've got some PCP here. Would you like to smoke it? Which is exactly how they would have said that's, it. Jordan, right. would you like to smoke a PCP cigarette? That's, you know, um, exactly. And, and how little art there is dedicated to it. Um, now, there is the, obviously, the, the, the Leak Brothers, um, album Waterworld, which is a theme record <laughs> dedicated entirely to the smoking of PCP. Oh, I know I said that this there were going to be a lot of digressions in this episode, <laughs> but wow, <laughs> we went full on like Alice in Wonderland down the rabbit mm, hole here. Yeah, well, I mean, again, maybe the person you have on to talk about the PCP scene would know the Leak <laughs> Brothers and would say, yes, of course, there is a famous you know album Waterworld dedicated to smoking PCP. It's a really good album. Um, I really recommend it. Um, other than that, Grave Diggers um, song "Trippin" is is a lot about PCP. Yeah. Um, other than that, I, you know, I bet the Ghetto Boys have a song about PCP. <laughs> they just must. You know, it's it's an untapped genre. The That's PCP my point. Story. That's my point. And uh, you know, other than like there was a a run of Daredevil when Frank Miller was writing it, and there were like school kids smoking PCP and throwing themselves out window. Mm-hmm. That real reactionary shit that was going on back then in, in Daredevil. Um, and like that famous Helen Hunt after school special movie. Do you remember that? Oh, you're she right. She throws herself through the window because she's on Angel Dust, PCP. I've also, other than uh, the Leak Brothers who don't actually make it sound really awesome to smoke PCP, um, <laughs> it's really a mystery of like, why are you, I guess you're just, it's that, that desperation to get high even yeah. if it's like, nobody ever goes, oh yeah, smoke PCP. You feel great. <laughs> I mean, it's like ketamine, which is another drug I've never done. That when people describe it, you go, "Is that?" And that's that's fun now. So you want to eat your own face? Yeah. So that's that's the well, that's the move, huh? That's the that's that's Friday night for you, huh? If nothing's on TV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so those are my thoughts on Keith Jardine and PCP. Um, <laughs> well, I can check those two off the list. I had those written down. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you hit those, so I didn't have to. Um, what, what can I ask you something to jump all the way back to the first of this conversation? Go nuts. So when it comes to, uh, I said ask, and now I'm going to talk. Um, talking about adapting difficult novels, um, L.A. Confidential has probably 12 mysteries in it, mm-hmm. easily. If that. Um, and so, you know, the last 50 pages of L.A. Confidential are solutions to mysteries and murders mm-hmm. that are all connected to each other, and that kind of bounces back and forth. And so... A, I just want to say, not my work, obviously. The film L.A. Confidential, I think you could argue, is one of maybe the greatest adaptation of all time for what it did with what is clearly an unfilmable novel. For what it synthesized. Yeah. And what, what, it, what it, it managed to synthesize yes. was, and even then, you know, if you recall, I remember when the film, I mean, I was, I was a teenager working in a video store when the film came out, and I was an idiot. Uh, but I, you know, I didn't understand the film then. I think I do better now. But I do remember even then, though, that was the talk that no one understood the movie at first. Like mm-hmm. It was, it was so confusing. Well, but it, in retrospect, now you go back and you watch it, and I'm, you're able to have a grasp on it. But yeah, I, I can't think of 
I mean, well, I can think of, and I'm not just saying this because you're sitting here. I was going to say I can't think of a better way of adapting it. I actually think that where you were going with it, that would have been perfect because I think it's a long-form story. Well, that was my argument was, uh, well, I mean, what the other thing he does, he, 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 you know, um, the film synthesizes, like you said. It also very smartly leaves out a tremendous a lot, amount. A lot, um, You know, and so... I have this line that I use in these Hollywood meetings that I, I, I think is a good summation of Hollywood, which is um, what happens a lot in Hollywood is somebody catches lightning in a bottle and all over town people go out and they buy bottles. But they don't have the, they don't have the lightning, and that's the part that Hollywood can never understand is it's never about the bottle, it's about the lightning. Mm. And I think that's always true. And I think so when people say, oh, it's like Twin Peaks, they mean it's set in a small town and people are quirky but there's a murder. Mm-hmm. They don't mean it was made by a surrealist genius. Yeah. Um, and it's the surrealist genius part that made that Twin makes Peaks. Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks. Um, and the thing that I would say when I was talking about LA Confidential is, guys, we've got the lightning. There's so much untapped material in this book, and I'm going to be able to use Elroy himself. I'm not going to have to synth. And I made a lot of stuff up, but I made it up the way the movie made it up, which was you took. Literally, I would treat the book like the I Ching. I would just flip through it and poke Mm. down and go, oh, yeah, look, there's something on this page that I can use for this totally unrelated scene because it's so rich and so dense. Um, So my plan was to basically take those, like, 12 mysteries. And uh, if those mysteries are like a woven rope in in the book, and they are, I was going to unweave them and lay them end to end. Mm -hmm. Um, So instead of one thick rope, you're going to have a very long string. And so, you know, the the mysteries that I started in the pilot, I was going to solve by the end of season one, which I, by the way, I think is just a dead set rule of of television is if you start a mystery in the beginning of episode one of season one, you have to end it in that season. Twin Peaks aside. Unless you're literally David Lynch. Unless you're literally David Lynch. And even then, that's what, like destroyed the show in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways um but like it's what killed the killing it it made people run and and that was one where nah you guys should have solved and then had the faith in yourself to start a new mystery season two so you know i i did dr frankenstein and the chavez ravine were going to be all season one and i was going to we're going to catch dr frankenstein and then i was going to do uh the night owl massacre at the end of season one which was going to be season two and for people who haven't who aren't familiar? Doctor Frankenstein is not Dick Victor von Frankenstein. No, no, I'm sorry. There's a, there's a serial killer uh, known as Doctor Frankenstein. Yeah, who who chops up uh, his his victims and then kind of mix and matches yeah. them. And Jordan and wasn't makes... doing the Universal Monsters uh, mega universe. Well, you know they're probably going to reboot be rebooting that in another like two months. So, yes, surely. Um, because they just keep they they are. Uh, that would be a real digression. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna. Well, I'm gonna wall that one off. Yeah, We're yeah. Let, go let's let's, let's, go let's moonwalk back to. to, to no, I just you know. I guess my question is, I, I guess you've answered this. This is pretty much the mystery that's in the book. Yes, there are a lot of digressions that are cut out. There are huge sections of the book where Doc consults with someone who has uh, access to ARPANET, the early internet, mm-hmm. and you know, wonderful bits where someone is explaining to Doc what the internet is. Yeah, in nineteen in March of nineteen seventy, and about how. You know, Doc's like, so I just type in here, you know, where is Shasta Faye Hepworth, and it'll tell me. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, his very next question is, can it tell you where to score? Score where can you get <laughs> weed? Uh huh. Um, the answer, by the way, today is yes. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, and there, there are, there are, there's a whole subplot about, you know, there's a brief scene in the film, in which Doc and his lawyer Sancho, they are 
talking about why Mickey Wolfman has disappeared. And it's a very com- the reasons for Mickey disappearing are very convoluted, essentially. Uh, if for anyone trying to keep track at home, he was a Trumpian asshole, a capitalist asshole who um, discovered acid and decided to start giving away housing for free, hence Channel View Estates, even though in his crookedness, even when trying to do a friendly endeavor like this, he's willing to destroy someone else's neighborhood to mm-hmm. build this free housing. Uh, and then his his wife and her boyfriend want to put a loony bin snatch on him because he's clearly losing his mind having distru- discovered drugs. And then the FBI, hearing that Mickey Wolfman is just giving away land for free and giving away free money, decide to take advantage of that and work with uh, Sloan Wolfman to kidnap Mickey and get him to buy up land on the Vegas Strip. Because, as, as, as Sanch says, they want, uh, like how, when Howard Hughes, right. uh, they, they want a white face, uh, a non-Italian on the Strip so they can have an in. And there is a humongous digression with that uh, subplot in which Doc goes to Vegas and starts tracking down where Mickey is and seeing him in the company of all of these these FBI agents, including the same agents that interrogate him earlier in the film. And looping back to Puck Beaverton, a.k.a. Keith Jardine. Mm -hmm. The Dean, I mean. There you go. Uh, He actually finds um, Puck getting married in Vegas to his uh, Chino boyfriend. And it's kind of a weirdly touching... (laughs) A weirdly touching uh, sequence where a woman who is in love with Puck hires Doc to track Puck down Mm -hmm. because, again, cases upon cases upon cases. And she happens to track – he, Doc, happens to track Puck to Vegas where he also discovers that's where Mickey is hiding as part of the FBI deal. And he also bears witness to the the marriage of – the happy marriage of Puck Everton. Huh. Yeah. And then it's it's just a nice little romantic subplot there. It's a – you know – and then everything else puckwise is the same. Is the same. Oh, that's nice. Uh, knowing what to leave out really is um, one of the most important things about adapting anything. Um, and the Las Vegas aside makes me think of uh, one of my favorite things to cut out of a film very smartly is the vaginal reconstruction subplot of The Godfather. The Godfather. And the, oh, God. Which just, I'll do it real quickly, but it's. Maybe I, explain what that means. I would know. That's what I'm going to do. So in the movie The Godfather, at the very beginning, uh, you see Sonny Corleone having sex with one of the bridesmaids, Lucy, Lucy, um, ag- against a, a wall or a door, yeah. and, and and that's basically it. You see her later; she is Sonny Corleone's lover, and you, so you see her in one other scene. And then Godfather Three, that's uh, oh right, uh, Andy Garcia's that's mom, his mother. Yeah. Um, in the novel, The Godfather, that woman is a fairly major character, and uh, forgive me, I didn't come up with any of this. This her, is all Puzo. This is all Puzo. Her vagina is so large that she's never been able to enjoy sex except for Sonny Corleone because he's so well endowed. Mm-hmm. So when he is murdered, spoiler alert for The Godfather, um, <laughs> she is heartbroken because how can she ever find love again? And the family takes pity on her and kind of keeps her around and moves her to Vegas when the family is looking to start a business in Vegas. There she meets a handsome plastic surgeon who falls in love with her but she's so embarrassed because of her giant vagina I did not make this up and cavernous is the word that he uses cavernous Cavernous. he's a terrible 
prose writer. Yes, he, he is. He's good at a lot of things, but his prose is terrible. Just quick aside, Godfather is not a, good, a well-written book. It is not. No, it is. Everything that makes The Godfather great is weirdly in it, mm-hmm. but everything that isn't in the movie is bad. Yeah. Everybody has the same. I can't remember if it's Cupid lips and like. Yep, yep. It's like he repeats everything. Anyway, so finally Lucy has sex with this plastic surgeon who's also connected to the Corleone family. I don't remember why. He's a mob doctor. He's a mob doctor. And they they have sex, and her, her vagina is so large that he can't enjoy it, and she's so embarrassed. But he goes, hey, no big deal. I'll just give you vaginal reconstruction surgery, and I'll just fit you to me. Um, and then they're happily in love and, and uh, yay, happy. And it's, it's terrible, man. <laughs> and, and, can, and, you know, can I say that? I didn't know where this conversation would go when we started mm-hmm. uh, this episode. I had some ideas, yeah. but I can tell you this is not one of the places <laughs> that I think that I thought this is not one of the conversational cul-de-sacs that I thought we would slowly wheel around through. No, that's on our true. way to the end. I guess what I would say is I, I'm sure that this was the first thing to get cut from the Godfather script when they sat around. Like, I don't think there's a draft sitting around where no, they went ahead and... No, it's the first thing in any... And boy, we are getting off topic. But it is the first thing if you watch any Godfather retrospective and you're listening to Coppola talk about, you know, adapting the material. He always uses the same word. You know, it was this pulpy, salacious novel. I wanted nothing to do with this. I was wanting to make my little art films. And it, and the first thing he mentions is he's like, my God, I read it. There's this horrible subplot about this woman with a huge vagina, and I'm like, how am I supposed to put this into a movie? And yeah, in <laughs> such a ridiculous, such a strange example to use, but it is such an apt one about what to leave out. Yeah. And you know, I don't know what your process is when you're adapting something. As, as I mean, you've you've laid out some of it about how to adapt such an insanely insanely but lyrically but still insanely dense novel and as we've established uh la confidential the novel is a motherfucker that's that's the term it is um it's a it's a it's a great book but it is a hard hard ass book to get through um only because of its density not because of it's, it's poorly written or anything but um for pta the only way that he could adapt this and i i get the feeling you're gonna find this laborious um, because you hate him so much to, to, to your to your rotten core, um, <laughs> but uh, he literally took the book and he put it on his desk in one of those cook those wooden like cookbook mm, yeah, folders, yeah, yeah. and page by page he adapted every single page of the novel into a, into a screenplay. Yeah, like direct page to page equal count, um, and adapted everything. And he just wrote it out as it was in the book, but in screenplay format because he said. That because you know he's a screenwriter, uh, I think he views himself as a writer more than anything else. Um, he couldn't understand how to manage the book by yeah. reading the book. He had to see it as a screenplay so as to know what what needed to be cut. If he could see it as a screenplay, he would know immediately what scenes don't belong in the film. And I I don't know what you think. Of that. I think it's a very interesting way of doing it. But as he said, he had to contextualize it. Sure. As, and he had to contextualize it as a screenplay. That's interesting. I think, obviously, first of all, like to do LA Confidential, that would be an, an, an insane, insane project, and and it wouldn't it wouldn't work because that novel is is so dense. And I have a whole story about why it's as dense as it is. But I I feel like we've digressed so far. I will say, as just coming at this purely as a writer, um, that's how my first draft of She Writes Shotgun when I adapted it myself for film. That's how I did that. I just like. Let's just type it up and mm-hmm. then start from there. I'm not sure it's a great technique because unless he has way more self-discipline than I do, now you're locked in. Yeah. 
you are locked into this structure. You are locked into not do I. Look, I am adapting myself. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I have a, a new version of the Shirai Shotgun script that I'm hopefully going to start work on very soon. Um, so I'm not living these words, but I, I do have a, a thing that I say, which is it's dangerous to adapt yourself for the same reason it's dangerous to operate on yourself. We say it's really important to be able to make cuts with no pain. Yeah. Um, and the kind of work that I did on LA Confidential, where I think there's literally one scene in the pilot of LA Confidential that actually occurs in the book. Um, everything else was an invention. Yeah. I still think I stayed very, very... No, no, there's, there's two or three, but, like, there aren't very many. And um, and I reshuffled everything, and I, I really think the best adaptations, the further I get down the road, the more I think the best adaptations are the least faithful um, because the book is always there. Let the book be the book. Take the things... And, again, this is what I think the movie LA Confidential does so well. It's what The Godfather does so well is take the things that work and then lift them up and, yeah. and, and make it a movie. And this is a movie, and I'm not saying he was wrong to do so. I'm saying once you do that, once you have a written script... You're locked in mm -hmm. on a very basic way, unless you're really willing to toss things out. And again, I, I think it worked. I think I think this was the way to do this film. Um, and I don't know, like that really. If you're not interested in the mystery, foremost, which is not a sin, um, you really want to maintain as much of it as the author created it, because once you start pulling threads of mysteries that mm -hmm. are this ornate. You got to start throwing cards on a wall. You know what I mean. You got to yeah. really start mapping it out, and or sitting and doing what Doc does, and literally writing out the plot on the side of his kitchen bar. I got, I read a thing on Vulture last week that I'm actually doing for my new book. That was like the, it was a piece of advice from for from mystery writers for mystery writers. And I don't know why I never thought of this before. It said the first thing you should write if you're writing a mystery is a four page description of the crime. Hmm. Like, not what's going to appear in the book. Just what happened. Just what happened. And then now you can build that makes sense. a subplot where you can have all these mysteries and, like, why is this? But you know what the answer is because you've got this four-page document of what the crime is. I just, I, It's a really smart piece of advice. And, you know, it, it also makes you want to break out the classic cork board, with the, with the, <laughs> which he does as well, right? Doesn't yeah, he? yeah. yeah. Um, I want the Chaz Palminteri usual suspects right. board behind me. Exactly. I really do want one of those. Uh, I don't have enough wall space because Los Angeles real estate. It always comes back to get it, you. It really it, does. It always comes back to that. Um, so um, Tariq never appears in the film again, right? Well, he does in the book. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, Michael K. Williams, shot a film or a scene, uh, that scene that is in the book. There's a bit where much later in the in the novel – Doc comes back to his office, and uh, Petunia Leeway, his nurse slash secretary, mm -hmm. played by Miss Maya Rudolph in this film, uh, she's doing everything she can to, to keep him from going into his office, which, by the way, it's never in the film, but uh, Doc's business is called LSD Investigations, Location Surveillance Detection. Oh, that's great. Uh, and and uh, he finally crashes into his office to find that Tariq Khalil... And Clancy Sherlock, Glenn Sherlock's sister, who also appears briefly in the film, uh, they're having sex and they're using his office for sex. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially that's the scene. And they catch him up a little bit on the again the goings on of Puck Beaverton, aka Keith Jardine, aka the Dean of Maine. And that's what sends Doc off onto his uh, Vegas excursion. But uh, he he appears one more time in the book, and that's to basically say. 
there's there's a again uh this is not movie related but talked in terms of things that are left out uh of an adaptation there is a an entirely different reason for glenn sherlock's murder in the book in the film it's contextualized as he had to be killed because he was the one guarding mickey wolfman and the fang slash the fbi slash vigilant california mm-hmm. needed to needed a fall guy uh, or needed they had to kill the guard to to put the snatch on mickey and that's why puff Be- puck beaverton aka keith Dredine, aka the dean of mean thank you uh that's why he switched shifts with glenn that day blah 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 basically uh in the book glenn had crossed the wrong people and was murdered by the fang because of that and they just use that as an excuse, and none of that's particularly interesting to someone who probably has, who has not read the book entirely. But um, and that's here I am going on digressions upon digressions. But yes, Tariq Khalil shows up one more time. There's a deleted scene; it's never been released. Mm-hmm. There are just stills from it of he and Clancy Sherlock sitting in Doc's office talking to Doc. All right. So eh, that's about it. <laughs> but, uh, oh, go ahead. No, it's, uh, it's changing. Just one other thing to say. I really liked the actress who played, I believe her name was Jade. Hong Chow. Hong Chow. Yeah, she's amazing. She's really good, and I I feel like she was a little underserved in this film. Um, she, I, I thought for a moment when uh, the second time she runs, he runs into her um, at the at party. At the Topanga house. Yeah, yeah, at the Topanga house. I thought, oh, she actually, she's helping him. There, Oh, is this a romance that is coming? Mm-hmm. And, and I felt like there should have been. Well... Uh-huh. In the book, she does not have a romance with Doc. She has a romance with Dennis, uh, Doc's pal, oh. Doc's stoner pal. Dinas. Like the sidekick guy? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dennis, parenthetically, as Pinchon notes, rhymes with penis. Um, she, there's a, you see it briefly in the trailer, uh, there's a sex scene between Dennis and Jade that gets that's cut out of the film where they have sex in the backseat of Doc's car as they're speeding away from the Topanga house mm. and convinced that they're being followed. She also has a larger role in the book, but just about every one of these characters who isn't Doc, Shasta, or Dennis, um, in the it's interesting that in the film everyone basically shows up for maybe one scene, for one scene, maybe two if mm-hmm. you're uh, Penny, aka uh, Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. Um, but everyone just kind of shows up once. Gotcha. All right. And uh, that's why I think also. Um, you have to cast such. I think some people were frustrated with all the big stars that were cast in this film, and they only all, they basically have a walk-on scene. But I think that's a necessity because it's the only way you're going to remember some of these people. Because yeah. as you said, you're not going to remember that some. Oh, that's Aubrey Threepley, the no. um, the head doc at the Criscilodon Institute, or that's Adrian Prussia, or that's Puck Beaverton. Right. You're just going to go. Oh, that's uh, it's Keith Jardine. That's Martin Short. That's yeah. And uh, I think it works. But uh, I do agree that I, my minimal, minimal complaints about Inherent Vice are that I could have used more jade in the yeah. film. I think she just, I don't know, she, she popped yeah, in a, she's in a, a basic way. She, yeah, and I'll have to keep her in mind and just a good actress. Well, on that note, we will be talking about jade in the very next episode. Oh, that's right. Yeah, not you and me. No, no, because, I know. I'm not. Cause, I'm not invited you, anymore. You're you're on the blacklist now. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, but Jordan, I appreciate you coming in today. I appreciate you talking to me about Peckerwood Prison Gangs, and the long sad history of LA land use, um, and vaginal reconstruction, mm-hmm. and Jim Elroy. Jim Elroy, like he's my pal. Jimmy Elroy. Oh, Jimmy Elroy. Old Jim Bob. Yeah. Um, 
and about inherent vice and about your complicated feelings about PTA. And I can only hope, I can only hope that you've undergone a kind of awakening <laughs> with this conversation and you're going to go home and you're going to sit down you're going to rewatch this movie and you go, you know what, there's something here. Uh, I will say, I actually, I absolutely am going to rewatch it and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, uh, take what you said. You, no, you've defended it very thoughtfully. And again, I do want to be clear. I didn't hate it. No, I know. I'm you just know. trying to be. No, mean. no, I know. I know. You've hurt my feelings. I, no, I'm just defending it because I realize what I've done here is, is I've wandered onto a, a podcast of people who most of the people listening to this are probably <laughs> not like so-so about Paul Thomas Anderson. They probably, probably been a fan. Although, I, can't, I can't protect you from these people. I, I don't, I don't need protection. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not locked in here with them. They're locked in here with me. Um, anyway, thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. I will talk about any movie, good or bad, anytime. That's awesome, man. Thank you for coming on. That's it until next time, where myself and a very special guest will explore Channel View Estates and the purple shagged walls of Chick Planet. I'll see you then. People in this town saw only what they'd all agreed to see. Old Thomas Pynchon wrote in a book you may be familiar with. They believed what was on the tube or in the morning papers half of them read while they were driving to work on the freeway. And it was all their dream about being wised up, about the truth setting them free. Hard not to think of the truth as a dream, just another dream. In a city like this, a city both made of dreams while also running roughshod over so, so many of them. But sometimes you find a little truth, whether in a book or a movie or a long conversation about both. And maybe we'll find a little more the next time around in a place called Channel View Estates. We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.